copy God's Word, Mark chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 20 this morning, and then we're going to talk about it. So Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Once you get that, if you would stand with me as we read through this. Starting at verse 1, it says, Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell into good soil, and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The one who hear, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would um, encourage us and enlighten us this morning. Holy Spirit, would you be our guide? Would you direct us into truth? Father, that we may walk in a way that is honoring and pleasing and brings glory to your name. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please be seated. I struggled a little bit this week on uh, how to prepare a sermon to explain to you the explanation of Jesus. It seems kind of redundant, right? But I think there's a couple of things that we want to look at this morning, three things specifically. I want to look at one parable, two purposes, and three principles. There's your outline, right? I'll give it to you right up front. One parable, two purposes, and three principles. So we're going to start with one parable, and I think there's a natural question that I always have is why? Why parables? What's the significance? A parable is a comparison between a simple um, earthly analogy or something that you see and can visually associate with to compare it to a singular spiritual truth. Okay, 
So let me say that again. A significance here is that, that a parable is a comparison, a comparison drawn between a simple earthly picture and a singular spiritual truth. Second thing you should understand about the significance of a parable is that they are intended for hearing. They're intended for hearing. When Jesus spoke parables, He didn't write them down so that we might go and study them. It doesn't mean that we don't go and study them, but I think there is something significant to it. Notice what Jesus says in verse 9. He says, He that has an ear, let him hear. The best way to understand a parable as a teaching device is to literally listen to it. So what I want you to do first and foremost is to put down your pen. If you need to, close your Bible. Put a little bookmark there so you can come back to it. But I want you to listen to it first. To listen to it. He that has an ear, let him hear. Again, he began to teach beside the sea and a very large crowd gathered about him so that the he got into the boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen, listen. A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and, such, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Another seed fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. I can picture Jesus, and what an incredible thing, that God the Father in the flesh as Jesus would know nature, and, and what a natural, if you've ever had the opportunity to go to Israel and you can get to go to the Sea of Galilee, it's an incredible place. But to know the natural amphitheater effect that Jesus would never have to use a microphone he wouldn't have to yell, but he would get out there and he would share this story. And it has a single spiritual truth. And we need to be careful because sometimes I think we dive into parables and we start analyzing every aspect of it and say this, has to, this relates to this and this is what the thorns are this. And that's not what Jesus was intending. There's a single spiritual truth and the way the communication works is that he will then, after he gets through explaining the spiritual truth, he will amplify it with other parables. And I'll give you the heads up. What is the single spiritual truth here? Kingdom growth. It's kingdom growth. And so he tells the story, and he tells the story for multiple reasons. I think there's three reasons, really, that Jesus would have used this parable in, in this specific uh, account, because number one, it would have been attractive to those who were there because they would have been able to relate to it, because most of them were probably able to, maybe even as they're sitting there listening to Jesus, they could maybe see a farmer in the background sowing seed. They'd be able to connect with that. They, you know, that's why when, when I used to teach uh, kids in Minneapolis, inner city kids, um, I would try and find stories or things that would connect to them, things that they would be able to associate with. 
And so Jesus, knowing that their background around here was fishing and, 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 and farming, he could know that his audience would have familiarity and so it would be attractive. He could avoid the controversies with the Pharisees and the scribes because he's telling a story that they could interpret it multiple ways. He had a specific purpose, but it was one way that he could get a truth out that would avoid some controversy. And the third possible uh, importance of the parable is that it would be the opportunity to awaken the mind of someone searching for truth. So when we begin to, to share stories and illustrations, Jesus does this over and over again. He's, he's trying to draw people in. People love a good story. You sit around a campfire and everybody has a good story to tell. And so you tell the story because you draw people in. And you can actually awaken people. When you, when you are sharing the gospel with somebody, it, it, it is super helpful to draw them in with something that they can associate with and connect with. And it actually gets them to think. And they might actually think through that. And it might awaken their conscience to a spiritual truth. So one parable. But the story goes on. It says, And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but to those outside, everything is in parables. And you get this fun little next couple of sentences, a quote from the Old Testament so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. Wow, that sounds pretty harsh, right? Sounds like to me that Jesus doesn't want some people to know and understand the truth of God's salvation. At first glance, when I read it, that's what I hear. But there are two purposes for why Jesus used parables as a tool. First, it was grace to the believer. Three conclusions from that. There are hard things to understand in this book. And Jesus uses parables as grace so that we can understand. Know this, that God wants and doesn't intend for His Word to be complicated. I am so frustrated with so much of what is today's Christianity. You know why? Because we have overcomplicated this. We love to quote pastors and theologians who use giant words that we are never finding in Scripture because we have to define things that, that God never defines. He says that we ought to have faith as a little child, that we should believe the truth that God came and He lived and He died and He was buried and rose from the dead. The Gospel is simple. And God doesn't intend for it to be complicated. And when it is hard, He uses stories to help us to understand. That is grace, brothers and sisters. That God does not give us something that is so hard for us to understand and to believe. There was a, 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 a whole segment of history, an era of history, in which they called it scholasticism in church history, where they, they would literally say that, that we cannot give the common people the Word of God in their own language because they're foolish and they wouldn't understand it. And so they only wrote it in the Latin. And Martin Luther came along and he said, Ad fontes, to the source. We want the word in our language because people need it. 
And the reality is that God's word is never meant to be so complicated that we can't understand it. There are hard things in it. But God does not intend it to be impossible and only for the intellectual. Praise Jesus, because I'm dumb. And there are things that I don't understand. But I am thankful that the things that I need to understand, God explains. I said there's three conclusions about this grace to a believer. God doesn't intend for His Word to be complicated. And God is willing and desiring to explain it so that you can understand. Think about it. Why a parable? Because I don't understand some of these truths, and so God wants to help me to understand, and He is willing to take the time. And a third conclusion is that it is a mystery. Over and over again, we read that, the, that there are mysteries, but it is one that God wants you to know. And He brings His Holy Spirit to help us, and He explains it in parables. That's grace. If I just tell my children you need to do this without an explanation of why or an explanation of how it works or, or how and, and even drawing on analogies that they might comprehend, that's pretty harsh. But we don't have a father like that. We have a father who came and dwelt among us and said, let me explain this to you in a way that you might be able to relate to. What an incredible thing. That is grace. But not only is the purpose for grace to the believer, it's also judgment to the unbeliever. To judge the hard heart. Please know that it is not God's intent that He doesn't want them to understand or never gives them a chance. But because of persistent refusal, He cuts them off. That's what this hard passage, you'll find, by the way, in Mark. Mark does not avoid hard and difficult passages and sayings. That's one of the things that Mark is known for. So he says things like that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. I would think that that's what God wants, that they would see it and perceive it, and that they would hear it and understand it, and they would turn and be forgiven. To me, as I read this at first glance, it sounds like God doesn't want them to do that. And so we get this sometimes this doctrine of uh, 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 that God has predestined some to go straight to hell and they have no say in the matter. And that is just far from the word of God. You say, well, it sounds like it. This is a warning to unrepentant and hard hearted people. There is still always personal responsibility. Pharaoh is a great example. People say, well, Romans chapter 9, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Brothers and sisters, read through Exodus again, and you'll find that Pharaoh hardened his own heart the first five times, and then God said, I'm going to strengthen your resolve to accomplish my purposes. God always allows and always puts it on personal responsibility first. And when we continue to say no and resist and resist and resist, he says, fine. I'm going to cut it off and move on. So we have one parable, we have two purposes, and then we're going to spend the bulk of the rest of our time with three principles. So Jesus gets these men together, and they ask Him, and I find it interesting, there's a number of things we could have talked about here, but He says, uh, they come to Him and they say, can you explain this parable to us? And he said something that I thought was interesting, but I'm not going to spend any time on. He says, do you not understand this? How are you going to understand all the parables? So is there a connection between this parable and all the rest? I think in this chapter, the answer is yes. 
But we're going to walk through the principles of kingdom growth that he's, why he's sharing this. He says, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. Three specific principles. Number one, the principle of sowing. Principle of sowing. Why tell the story? Well, first of all, you have the principle of sowing. Sowing is a responsibility. I want you to understand that. Sowing is a responsibility. It says that the sower sows the word. And we sometimes look at this passage and say that this is about Jesus sowing the word. There is truth to that, but there's also a principle here that if we have seed, the one who has seed ought to be sowing it. The seed is what? It says it's the word. Jesus explains it. The seed is the word. He that has seed ought to be sowing it, right? You don't just collect seed if you're not going to plant it. Sowing, he that has seed ought to be sowing. This is the principle of sowing. Second, seed should be sown. And I love this. It it was really interesting and eye-opening to me as I began to walk through this passage um, I began to think through, okay, the sower went out to sow and he cast some seed on the path. He cast some seed on the rocky ground. He cast some seed in the, uh, the, the thorns and he cast some seed on the good soil. Okay, that doesn't seem very efficient, does it? Why wouldn't he just save all his seed for the good soil? Because the principle of sowing is this. Not only does he who has seed ought to be sowing, but he who has seed ought to sow liberally no matter what the perceived condition of the soil is. That is a a fascinating thought to me. Because here's what we oftentimes do as believers. We have the Word, and we're going to share the Word of God with those people who we think are ready for the Word of God. But we are called to sow it everywhere irregardless of what we perceive the soil to be. That we are to cast it out there and not sit here and judge, well, their heart isn't ready for it, or their heart isn't ready for it, or their heart isn't ready for it, but that one is, so that's where I'm going to spend the bulk of my time. No, no, it says to sow it. He sows everywhere, liberally. And another principle about the sowing is that the goal of sowing should always be to reap. Think about it. These are just common sense things that I began to think through. When I think through sowing, I think of farming, planting. Um, You don't keep it, you plant it. And you don't plant it just where you think that ground might not be worth it. You plant it everywhere. And you have a purpose behind it. The purpose is to reap it. Think about it. Anybody who just plants it just to watch it grow and not do anything with it, that's kind of silly to me. You have a purpose in it. To reap. The principle of sowing. This is all about kingdom growth. The principle then of soil. The quality of growth is directly related to the response of the individual. And here's the challenge that I want us to especially think through. Because here's what I have almost always done when I read this story. I think of this as salvation planting, right? 
And so if I'm saved, if I'm a believer, this doesn't apply to me as much anymore because my heart has already received the word and hopefully it bears fruit. But there's also more than just salvation in kingdom growth. There is application in kingdom growth that when the word is planted in me, I should be growing. And my soil of my heart from time to time can actually refuse the word of God and not grow. Because kingdom growth is more than just multiplication, it is also growth. We tend to see it only as salvation. I say that because I want us to look through these four types of soil and actually consider how am I responding to the Word of God, whether I'm a believer or an unbeliever. Because I think it can be very applicable when the Word of God is sown in our hearts, even if we are believers. So notice there are four types of soil in this that Jesus mentions. He starts out and he said, in explaining, he says, the sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path. So he starts with the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. The first type of growth is no growth. No growth says that Satan comes and he takes it. It's people who, as it says, people who hear. It says in, in verse 15, these are the ones along the path. Notice a couple of things. It says when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And, and we as Christians sometimes like to do this. Um, uh, blame Satan for everything. Satan made me do it. Satan, it's Satan's fault. Brothers and sisters, there's always personal responsibility. Yes, Satan has come and, and, and in this case, taken the, the, the seed, but the reality is this is a perfect picture of people who hear but do not listen. They have no place for truth. They are unteachable. I struggle with this from time to time. I think I know it all, so I don't need to hear it from you. Satan has already taken the word that he is trying to have God implant in me. And we can't just blame Satan for taking it away. Yes, he does, but ultimately it's the hard heart that has heard it and says, I have no place for it. They have trampled. It's the beaten path that has been trampled by men and rules and regulations, maybe personal experiences from my life. And I have no place for the word anymore. And even as a believer, we can struggle with this when a brother comes to you and says, you know what, hey, I just see this in you and I just want you to be aware of it. Maybe it's a blind spot. No, no, I don't have that blind spot. You're not teachable. That is a dangerous place. There's no growth. But Jesus goes on, he says, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy and they have no root in themselves. But they endure for a while, then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, world, word, can't read, immediately they fall away. The second type of growth is shallow growth. Notice what they do. It says that they hear the word, they're overjoyed, they receive it, but they do not dig in and have no depth. Far too many Christians linger here. Far too many Christians today, they hear it. They do not dig in. There's no depth. Paul addresses this, I'm sorry, uh, 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 in talking to Timothy. He says, do your best to present yourself to be 
to God is approved. You Awana people should know this. Do your best to study, to show yourself approved. Dive in, dig in, that you might show that you are a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the Word. The, the he, writer of Hebrews talks about this at the end of chapter 5. He says, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. It means that they heard it once and they received it, but they stopped. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basics of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have the, their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. There was a missionary uh, from, I think, India a number of years ago. He came to America, and after spending time traveling throughout the country, he came to a conclusion that the American church is 10 miles wide and one inch deep. It's a dangerous place. Shallow growth. Notice the, the use of the word immediately in the passage. Immediately they received it. But immediately when tribulation comes, they fall away. There's no depth. There's no contemplation. There's no deliberation. There's nothing to base things on. They're impulsive. Again, I, I try and evaluate these things based on my own life and I thought through this and I thought if I am fickle or impulsive in my walk of faith, bouncing around from thought to thought, this is evidence of shallow growth. There's no depth, there's no bedrock, there's no foundation. But if I'm constantly swayed from one thing to the next and if I'm constantly doing this or that, there's no depth. And I'll tell you how it's brought about. So the first one was a refusal to be taught the Word. The second is a refusal to spend any time in the Word or in prayer. How can we ever possibly grow in the Christian faith if we don't spend time in the Word and in prayer? How can we possibly get a comprehension of who God is and what He desires of us? How can we possibly know how to please Him if we don't spend the time in the Word and in prayer and communication with Him on a daily basis? You want to know why the American church is uh, 10 miles wide and one inch deep? Because we don't spend time in the Word or prayer because we have so many things going on. We wake up in the morning and we've got to be here by a certain time and we've got to do this by a certain time and we've got to go here and there and everywhere. It sounds like a cat in the hat. And so we say the first thing we're going to give up is that time with the Lord. Because we can make up for it later. No, you won't. Don't tell yourself that lie because what ends up happening is it gets busier the rest of the day. And so we have the American church built on a very shallow foundation. And so there is shallow growth. And then Jesus goes on. He says, so those are the first two. Here's the third. And others, in verse 18, are the ones among thorn, sown among thorns. 
They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. These are what you might call stunted growth. Notice what it says. It says that they hear, they receive, but they're not sold out. They're not deeply committed. They are, in fact, double-minded and preoccupied with other things to the neglect of their faith. In James chapter 1, we are told the warning of this. As James writes, he says, he is a double-minded man. How? Unstable in all his ways. Jesus even tells uh, in Matthew chapter 6 a warning. He says, you cannot serve two masters. Either you will love the one or hate the other. Either you will love the one and hate the other. And Jesus tells us, what are those things that that cause this? What are the things that draw the heart away from the Word? He says, first of all, the cares of this world. The cares of this world, the things that make me anxious and toil, the things that that I can't get over. I I have to figure out how I'm going to do this. I'm going to have to do this and that. And and, and I don't know what to do and I I can't figure it out. I don't know. The cares of this world. The anxieties that we face, brothers and sisters, when we are consumed by the cares of this world, it leads to a lack of faith. Jesus says, cast all your anxieties on me. Do you know why? Because He cares for you. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Why? Because it is light. It is easy. Jesus tells those crowds gathered at the Sermon on the Mount, He says, why do you worry about clothing? Why do you worry about food? Why do you worry about all these things? Let me tell you what you ought to do. Seek My kingdom first. The cares of this world it ultimately is a lack of faith. Deceitfulness of riches materialism, a pursuit of money, the pursuit, uh, you know, we like to sometimes, I shouldn't say we, people like to misquote 1 Timothy and say the love of money is the root of all evil. That's what the verse actually says, but they say money is the root of all evil. No, no, no. The love of money is the root of all evil. Money is an inanimate object. I just want you guys to know that if you haven't figured it out. But the love of it, in such a way that I'm going to pursue it with all of my heart and mind and goal. That is my, my desire. He says the desires and the deceitfulness of riches. Why is it deceitful? Because guess what? When you die, you can't take any of it with you. We can build up. We can build up wealth. We can build up all kinds of things here. But brothers and sisters, you can't take a dime of it with you. It means nothing. In the end, God even takes all of this materialistic place and He says, I'm going to burn it with fire. But yet we, we have this pursuit of it. And so we get choked up in it. And we, we suddenly, I can't tell you how many times where I've looked at my life and I begin to, uh, to, to evaluate, why am I doing this? Why do I have this side project? Why am I doing this here? Why am I doing that? And, and I can throw out, and this is what we do sometimes. We throw out uh, excuses to help with it. Well, I'm going to use that for ministry. I'm going to buy that new bike for ministry purposes. No, no, I want that bike. That's why I'm buying it. 
I'm telling myself that. That's deceit. Deceitfulness of riches, materialism. And, and please do not misunderstand me. There is nothing wrong with having, but it's loving. Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus says to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life, what? Does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I can't tell you how many times I've seen people stray from ministry because they couldn't acquire their dream house or possessions. And that's not what we are called to. Cares of this world, deceitfulness of riches, these are things that cloud it out. And then he says the desire for other things, misplaced affections. Where are your values? As we begin to evaluate this, as we begin to think through, if someone sows the word in me and my values are not in that God and His glory are priority number one for me, then I am going to have stunted growth. And I'm going to be choked out by this world. When I have my focus on other things, when my values are not the values that God says, when He says, here's the values you should have, Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God. A value is an assignment of worth that we place on something that will dictate our actions and our attitudes. I always used to tell the youth when we would meet with them um, uh, that if you want to know what you really believe, look at how... You behave. Your actions always dictate your beliefs. Because we can say, I believe that God is going to protect me, but I am trembling in fear. No, you don't believe that. If you say that you believe something, then your actions will determine. Now, your actions can betray you from time to time, but the reality is, for the most part, if I believe that God is real, I am going to show up on church on Sunday morning. Why? Because I believe that God is real and He desires me to be with other people. So I'm going to walk in the door. You know that when you walk in this room, you declare every Sunday, I believe in God. Why else would you come here? Not to hear me. Your actions always. And so when we place our values on things, if it's not the Word of God and receiving God and, and glorifying His name, then it will get choked out. The key question for evaluation might be, what is your dream? And note how this section of this, this growth ends. He says that um, uh, the care of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves how unfruitful note they have the word and it was unfruitful in their life side application knowledge of the word isn't enough it has to be application there has to be growth there has to be a desire to seek his kingdom i could tell you i've heard of uh, 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 uh i don't remember his name it just escaped me but a guy who could quote you the entire bible he had an incredible mind but he was an atheist knowledge of the word is not simply enough that's not growth so jesus tells us these three gross and then he finishes this with this last one which i just simply and i don't have creative names for these by the way full growth Notice what he says, but those 
that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. The one who receives and bears fruit. Receives, accepts, bears fruit. Three things. Receives the word, accepts the word, and bears fruit and goes and does. So there's the principle of soil. And the last one I would, I would conclude with is the principle of success because the chapter ends or the section ends with this incredible statement. It's, it's the second time he said it. The fruit is 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. The principle of success that fruit is differing. Oh, how we love to compare ourselves, right? We love to compare ourselves and we look around and we say, if only we could be like that church there. If only we could have 20 baptisms on a Sunday, on Easter Sunday, that'd be incredible because they did it over there. If only we could do this just like them. No, the principle of success starts with understanding that fruit differs. Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. And not only is it differing, but it's not necessarily related to effort, but God's grace. I have been in ministry at this church for 12 years. Is that right? It's crazy. Came here young and naive. Been here 12 years, and, and it's never been a three, four, five, six, seven hundred person church. And you know what? I meet with other pastors, and they have six, seven thousand, two thousand people in their church. And you know what the temptation is? I'm not as successful as them. There was a time in my ministry when I first started and I would meet with these other pastors and I literally told them I feel like the little kid, you know, when you have Thanksgiving dinner and somehow I got put at the adult table. And the Lord rebuked me from uh, one of the wise older men of that group and he said, success is the Lord's work. We just need to be faithful. And there is reality there. Notice what he says. Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. And I have come to know and realize and believe with all of my heart that God gives us exactly what we can handle. And I know my capacity. And I'm grateful that the Lord gives me what he does. So how do we take all of this, this incredible parable, this, this one story that has a specific purpose that we might understand and the principle being kingdom growth and kingdom growth looks like a number of things. Kingdom growth is salvation. Of course, we can take that and directly relate it to salvation that, that the one who, who hears the word and, and refuses it, the Satan comes and takes the seed away, but the reality is they're unteachable. There's no salvation there. We sit here and say, because the other thing we can do is we can start evaluating, well, they received it and and, and, and they, they, they took it. Did they really believe? Did they lose their salvation? How does that? Don't do that. It's not what the story is intended for. It's intended for us to evaluate our own hearts and realize, where is my heart? And I think the first question that I'm asking as I walk through this application is this. Am I, first of all, sowing liberally? I've received the Word of God. That should excite me. And I should be overwhelmed at the goodness of God's grace. 
He that sows sparingly reaps sparingly. I realize that has to do with, with giving, but it's the same principle when it comes to our spiritual walk that if I am not willing to share the truth with my neighbor, they may never hear it. Thankfully, God is sovereign and He is much greater than me. And in spite of me, He can overcome that. But He's given me a responsibility. I have seed. What am I doing with it? Second, what type of soil is my heart? Is it such a way that I'm unteachable? That if you were to come to me with the blind spot in my life, that it would be packed down hard, that you could never implant that truth into my heart, and it is solid, and it is resistant, and guess what? When you try to plant it in, it is taken away. Or is my heart in such a way that, that there is no depth because I'm not spending time with the Lord? That, that, that The reality is that when, when spiritual truths come, I don't really apply myself to them and I'm just fickle, I'm bouncing around and, and there's no depth there because I'm just walking through this life and, 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 and what a, a terrifying thing to think through, not from a guilt or shame perspective, but Jesus says that there will be some that enter into the kingdom of heaven as if by fire. You're going to be walking in with your legs singed. You'll get in. Is that really how you want to honor your king? Maybe another aspect of the question that we ought to be asking, because this is an analogy about, about seed being planted and plants growing up, is just the simple question, am I growing? Brothers and sisters, if we are walking through life with no growth, what are we doing? Seeds are meant to grow. The Word of God has been implanted in you. It ought to be bursting forth with fruit from the Holy Spirit. And last, I'd be remiss if I wouldn't just simply ask, has the seed of God even been planted in your heart? Brothers and sisters, there are people that walk into church on Sunday mornings that hear this, who have never had the Word planted in them. And so Jesus sows seed. He sows seed this morning. And here's the reality that Jesus Christ has come, He has lived, He has died, He has been buried, and He has raised from the dead. Why? To offer salvation to all who would believe. The reality that, that as, as human beings, there is a definite and a distinct need in our hearts because of sin, because anybody who, whether they believe in the Word of God or not, has to identify with the fact that there are things that they do that they know that they shouldn't do, that there are things that they do that they don't want to do, and that is called sin, and it is dwelling in our heart because of the very first time Adam and Eve sinned, and that since that moment on, God has said, you cannot be in my presence because of the separation that sin has from a holy and just and righteous God, and Jesus Christ came to fix that. And He died in my place, in your place. He was buried, and death could not keep Him buried. And so the seed is planted. And if our hearts are tilled in such a way, we receive that and we bear fruit.
and the fruit is righteousness, not of our own, but righteousness from Jesus Christ. What an incredible thing. He who has ears to hear, Jesus says, let him hear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you that we can have truth communicated to us through the Word of God that you desired us to understand and comprehend. You didn't want to come up with complicated truths that we could never understand and therefore never obey or follow after. You want us to know you. And so you've written your word and the truths that are hard. You said, let me explain that in a way that you can understand. And so you've given us your word. And Father, I pray that if we are here today with some type of soil in our own heart that is not fit for receiving the word to grow and be plentiful in fruit. Lord, would you reveal that to our own hearts this morning? Would you help us to realize when we are unteachable? Would you help us to realize when we have become fickle in our faith and it has no depth? Would you help us to dive deep into your word each and every day without fail that we might grow into a knowledge of who you are as the Apostle Paul declared, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his ways. May we declare as the psalmist, oh, how I love thy law. Lord, would you draw our roots deep into you, that we might be as the man who builds his house upon a firm foundation that cannot be shaken. And Lord, would you protect us from the cares of this world, the covetousness that is so easily enticing, the worries of what is next, the worries of, of how am I going to do this? And how am I going to provide? Father, would you help our hearts to trust you? That we might rely upon you and not be choked out by the cares of this world. Father, we love you. We thank you that you have given us the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to all who would believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.